Father, how we love your word. Uh, for in your word, we see you. We see who you are. We see what you have done for us. We see your heart. Your heart of grace, your heart of mercy. Um, Father, would you open the eyes of our hearts this afternoon to see you and to worship as we should. Amen. Amen. Well, um, one of the things that makes movies different to real life is that in real life, you don't always know whether or not this moment is a big one. Does this moment and how you live it matter? Does this decision matter? Does this conversation with this person matter? In movies, there's a soundtrack that tells you that this is a big moment. Uh, in the movie Gladiator, there's that scene where the Emperor uh, Commodus confronts Russell Crowe's character after he's just uh, beaten somebody up in the Colosseum. And the music, the, the soundtrack builds the tension of the scene until the moment when Russell Crowe delivers probably his most famous line in any of his movies. Uh, my name is Maximus Decimus Meridius, commander of the armies, general of the legions, and, and so on. And the point, uh, at that point, the music swells, it's bold, it's triumphant, and it tells us that this is a big moment in the unfolding of the plot. But in your day-to-day -day life, you probably don't have a soundtrack. Um, trying to imagine you at the office, uh, sitting at your desk or at school in geography class or at home helping to make supper with your portable Bluetooth speaker, blasting out the anthem from Chariots of Fire each time you reply to an email or copy down some notes or peel carrots or something. And the soundtrack swells to alert you and everyone else that this moment really matters. But of course, that doesn't happen, does it? And so uh, you probably think that your moments are just ordinary, nothing special about them. But at the same time, in the flow of your ordinary moments, your heart tells you, does it not, that you were made, created for some glorious purpose. And you were. The trouble is, we seem able to recognize glorious purpose only in glorious moments. Now, many of you will know the old hymn, uh, once to every man and nation comes the moment to decide in the strife of truth and falsehood for the good or evil side, some great cause, some great decision, offering each the bloom or blight and the choice goes by forever that darkness and that light. The moment to decide, the strife for good or evil, the great cause, the great decision, and the choice goes by forever. Great and glorious purposes unfolding in great and glorious moments, moments that deserve a soundtrack. And yes, we do have those moments in our lives, but mainly our lives are made up of 10,000 times 10,000 ordinary moments. And chapter 2 of Ruth teaches us that God is at work in every one of our ordinary moments to catch them up into his glorious purposes. So you'll remember from last week that the big idea of chapter 1 was turn to the Lord 
see who he is. The Lord God of Israel is the Lord who comes to the aid of his people, to give food to the starving, to give life to the dying. And he is the Lord who sends word of his coming to those whose hearts he has prepared, sometimes by hard and bitter providence, to receive life from his hand. Turn to the Lord, trust in him, and be saved. Now, the big idea of chapter 2 is this, that the Lord is at work in every one of your ordinary moments to catch them up into his glorious purposes. Now, we'll see that in the chapter in two parts. First, we'll see it in what God does. And second, we'll see it in what Ruth and Boaz do. Divine providence overruling all in ways unseen and unknown to the characters, to you and to me, to Ruth and to Boaz. Plus, daily faithfulness in Christian character. Plenty of uh, engineers and scientists among us who uh, enjoy formulas. We can put it this way. Divine providence plus daily faithfulness equals participation in God's glorious purposes. So first, let's see what God does. More could be said, and we will get into more in, in the weeks to come, but today I'm going to highlight three things. Number one, the Lord guides. Number two, the Lord provides. And number three, the Lord shows favor. The Lord guides, the Lord provides, and the Lord shows favor. So first, the Lord guides. Now, you remember what's happening in the story. Naomi has returned from Moab together with her, uh, her daughter-in-law, Ruth. And at the end of chapter one, the writer tells us, they arrive in Bethlehem just as the barley harvest is beginning. Ruth says to Naomi uh, in verse two of chapter two, let me go and see if somebody might be kind to me and, uh, and let me glean, let me pick up leftover grain behind the harvest workers in their field. And so now we as the readers are supposed to be wondering, and we do wonder, will somebody be kind? Will somebody let Ruth do that? So now let's pick up in verse 3. Follow with me in your Bibles. Verse 3 of chapter 2. So Ruth went out, entered a field, and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, or your translation might say, she happened to come. As it turned out, she ended up in the field of Boaz. As it turned out, she happened to. Literally, the Hebrew text says, her chance chanced upon. As luck would have it, we might say. As it turned out, she ended up in the field of Boaz. Well, what the writer is saying to us here is, there was no luck at all involved in this. There was no just happened to about this. See the hand of God. See how he guides those he loves. See how Ruth just happened to arrive in the field of Boaz. Our God guides his beloved in the paths of his blessing. How many things in your life just happened to work out just the way they did? You just happened to meet that friend on that day at school or at university. 
and he or she became one of your closest friends for life. You just happened to be at that same CU prayer meeting as the guy or girl you ended up marrying. You just happened to have that conversation on that career day with that person, which led to you doing the work that you now do. Your parents, your great-grandparents, the generations before you just happened to make 10,000 ordinary little decisions with no soundtrack to alert them that this decision really is a big one. And the hand of God was guiding them in every one of those ordinary moments. Now, it's much easier to see it all in the rearview mirror, isn't it? It's harder to trust that God is guiding you this moment, this ordinary moment, right now. But he is. Even if, like Ruth, you can't see it just yet. The Lord guides. Second, the Lord provides. Now, this is just beautiful to see. How does the Lord provide? Turn back in your Bibles, if you, if you would, to uh, verse 6 of chapter 1. You remember this from last week. Uh, Naomi heard while she was still in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them. So she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return to Bethlehem. And they get back to Bethlehem. And as the writer tells us at the end of chapter one, the harvest is just beginning. Now, remember, this is after a long and severe famine. And the famine under God's hand had served its purpose. So God caused the crops to grow. And once again, after long years empty, the fields were full of barley and of wheat. In God's general care and providence for his people, he provided food again. But how did the Lord provide specifically for Ruth and for Naomi? By his law. By his law. The Lord provided by his law. What do I mean by that? Well, earlier in Israel's history, uh, at the time they were still camped around Mount, uh, Mount Sinai after the Exodus, uh, when God gave the Ten Commandments, he also gave a whole bunch of other laws. And one of those laws was this. Now you can read it in the book of Leviticus in chapter uh, 19, verses 9 and 10. When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I am the Lord your God. You see, God had commanded the Israelites not to reap the harvest to the very edges of their fields. Don't gather it all, he told them. Leave some. Leave some behind for the poor, for the foreigner among you, for those in need. Leave some for them. And that's what we see Ruth doing. You'll see here in verse 2 of chapter 2. Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Well, Bethlehem was an agricultural town and it was harvest season and many were hungry after long years of famine. No doubt there would have been other poor, there would have been other widows, there would have been others in desperate need. Ruth would have picked up from conversation around town that this was a provision of God's law. Or perhaps Naomi had told her about it as they walked the journey home from Moab. 
God provided for Ruth a foreigner, a Moabite no less. Remember, the Moabites were enemies of God's people. God provided for nobody, for a nobody, should I say, with no claim, with no rights in themselves, by his law. And I wonder if you see where the, where the writer is leading us. Where does God's law point us? We've just studied Paul's letter to the Colossians. Uh, do you remember what Paul tells us in verse 17 of chapter 2 of Colossians? All these former things, all the provisions of the law, were what? Just the shadow of what was yet to come. The substance belongs to Christ. In his law, God shows us who he is. He is the Holy One. As Isaiah says, who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? And he is, as the psalmist tells us, the Lord who is good to all, whose tender mercies, whose compassion rests on all he has made. The Lord guides by his hand unseen in the ordinary moments of your life. And the Lord provides for your good, ultimately for your salvation, by his law, which is ultimately fulfilled in Christ. Third, the Lord shows favor. Look again at verse 2 of chapter 2. Now hear carefully what Ruth says. Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and claim my rights under the law. The law of Moses commands that farm owners leave the edges of their field for the poor and the foreigner, and I qualify. It's my right. Let me go and claim what I'm entitled to. Well, no, that's not what she says. Let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Let me go and find favor. And then the writer tells us how she did find favor at the fields of Boaz. Both the harvest manager and then Boaz, Boaz himself show her kindness. And in verse 10, the writer tells us, she bowed down with her face to the ground and asked Boaz, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? Let me go in the hope that I will find favor, verse 2. And now verse 10, why have I found such favor? And look at Boaz's answer in verses 11 and 12. Essentially he says, because you counted the cost, you left all behind. You left your former life behind entirely, and you have come to the Lord, the God of Israel, to take refuge under his wings. You see, Ruth was looking beyond the law to the lawgiver. The law gave her certain rights, and she could have claimed those rights with a legalistic sense of entitlement. But she's looking beyond the law to the Lord of the law. She seeks not rights in the law of the Lord, but refuge in the Lord of the law. The psalmist expresses a very similar thing in Psalm 119, uh, verses 113 and 114. He writes, I love your law. 
You are my refuge and shield. I love your law because your law, O Lord, shows me who you are. I'm not so concerned about the rights your law gives, though I'm grateful for those. It's you I want. I don't just want rights under your law. I want to get up close to you, under your wings, to know your arms around me, to feel the embrace and the safety of your love, to know you. Um, I have a quote uh, written in the front of my Bible from Puritan writer Jeremiah Burroughs. He says, this is from his book, um, the rare jewel of Christian contentment. Suppose you have the peace of God. Will that not quiet you? No. I must have the God of peace as well as the peace of God. So the God of peace, that is, I must enjoy that God that gives me the peace. I must have the cause as well as the effect. I must see from whence my peace comes and enjoy the fountain of my peace as well as the stream of my peace. Ruth looked beyond the law to the Lord of the law for refuge. May I find favor, verse 2. Why have I found favor, verse 10. And now verse 13. May I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord. You have comforted me, though I am someone of no standing. And how does the writer describe the one who shows favor to this poor foreigner of no standing? Well, back in verse 1 of chapter 2, a worthy man or a man of standing, your translation might say. The writer is showing us in the person of Boaz, the worthy man, the man of standing, that the Lord shows favor to those who seek refuge under his wings. The Lord, by his hand unseen, guides in the ordinary moments of your life. And the Lord provides for your good by his law and his law leads you to the worthy man. To the man of standing through whom he brings you under the shadow of his wings. And you see where this is pointing, don't you? Who is the worthy man? Who is the man of standing? Who is the man through whom the Lord brings those who seek refuge under the shadow of his wings into his care? Into eternal favor in his eyes, close to his heart, up close to him, under the shadow of his wings. Well, 10,000 angel voices tell us just who that man is. In the book of Revelation, worthy is the lamb who was slain. Worthy is he. Worthy is the Lord Jesus Christ. By his, his death and his resurrection, we who come to him for refuge now live forever in the favor of our Father. 
Well, let's remember where we are. I said at the beginning that the big idea of chapter two is this, that the Lord is at work in every one of your ordinary moments to catch them up into his glorious purposes. And I said we'd see that in this chapter in two parts. First, we'll see it in what God does. And second, we'll see it in what Ruth and Boaz do. Now, we've seen what the Lord does. The Lord guides. The Lord provides. The Lord shows favor. The Lord is at work in your ordinary moments when there's no soundtrack playing, playing from the clouds. He is at work catching up your ordinary moments into his glorious purposes. And now we're going to see how this plays out in what Boaz, Boaz and Ruth do. But before we do, it's important just to remember one thing we saw last week. You remember that we said the whole book from chapter 1, verse 1, through to almost the end of chapter 4, is essentially a long introduction to the genealogy of the last five verses. Everything the writer tells us in the whole story is telling us how we get from the desperate situation of a hopeless, nameless, sunless, empty, widowed refugee in the dark days of the judges. That's where things stand in, in uh, chapter 1, verse 5. How we get from there to the king and the kingdom, to David at the end of chapter 4. So how do we get there? The Lord guides, the Lord provides, the Lord shows favor, and he has done all these things for you in Christ, but also Boaz and Ruth played their parts. And now we want to see what that looks like. I must deal with one objection before we do, for, before we do though. Uh, don't we often get told that we mustn't moralize the Old Testament? We're not supposed to look to Old Testament characters for moral examples. Well, I want to push back on that. Yes, it is true that the primary purpose of the Old Testament is not to give us moral examples. But that not being its primary purpose doesn't mean that there's no place for us to learn from those who so clearly display beautiful and God-fearing character. After all, if we can't look to God's inspired word for examples of Christ-like character, then where should we look? Doesn't the Apostle Paul tell us or tell Timothy that all scripture, all scripture is God breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness. The Old Testament is part of all scripture for teaching what well, we learn by example, just as we as much as we do by doctrine, don't we? So let's see what we can learn from Boaz and from Ruth now. I'd encourage you to read this chapter over and over again and let the word of God soak into your soul and into your imagination. And you'll see much more than I'm going to say this afternoon. But for now, I've just selected two things about Boaz and two things about Ruth uh, that I believe the Lord would have me draw to your thoughts today. So first, look with me at verse five. Boaz asked the overseer of his harvesters who does that young woman belong to boaz notices somebody in need and he takes the initiative to find out more it's obvious she's in need because she's one of those who's gleaning from the edges of the field picking up the leftovers he sees somebody in need 
and he takes the initiative to find out why. He takes the initiative to understand her situation. He doesn't stand back and do nothing. He doesn't say to himself, she's not my problem. He doesn't say to himself, I've obeyed the law. I've left the edges of my field for the poor. I've ticked the box. I've done what's required of me. And that's that. No, he goes further. He fulfills the spirit of the law by making an effort to understand the need of somebody who the Lord has brought within the realm of his care. Dear friends, how might you be like Boaz to somebody in need right now? Why don't you pray and ask the Lord? Is there somebody he has brought within the, the sphere of your awareness, brought onto your radar, so to speak, who's clearly in need? Could you take the initiative to find out a bit more, to understand their situation? Second, look at verses 8 and 9. So Boaz said to Ruth, My daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field. Don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting. Follow along after the women. I've told the men not to lay a hand on you. And whenever you're thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. Do you see Boaz's his, his care, his protection, his provision for Ruth and through Ruth for Naomi? But notice how Boaz addresses Ruth the very first time he speaks to her. My daughter, listen to me. My daughter. Now, Boaz was a somewhat older man. Ruth was still a young woman. But there are plenty of other respectful and appropriate ways an older man could have addressed a younger woman. He could have said, excuse me, Ruth. I've learned your name and your story from my foreman. He could have said, excuse me, miss. Excuse me, young lady. He could have greeted her in any number of other terms. My daughter, listen to me. He made it personal. Ruth had no claim on Boaz. She had no right to expect anything of his personal care. Under the law, she had a right to glean the edges of his field. But the law gave her no access to his heart-level care. But he makes her situation personal to himself. My daughter, he says. All his care, all his protection, all his provision, all that we see flowing out from him in verses 8 and 9 flow not from any law-based obligation but from a heart that moved towards a vulnerable person in need and said your need is personal to me i give you a claim not just on the edges of my field but on the care of my heart Dear friends, is there somebody whose need the Lord would have you make your personal concern? Now let's look at Ruth. Look again at verse 2. 
Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in, in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. Ruth sought counsel and she took initiative. She and Naomi were in a desperate situation. She had come to know the edges of the field law. So she knew that going to pick up the leftovers was within God's will. So she took the initiative and said, I'm going to do this. But she sought counsel first. She didn't wait for food to drop out of heaven. She said to herself, here's an opportunity for me to work with the strength and the energy God has given me. And I know it's within his will because he uh, he asked Naomi's leave to go and act on what the law, sorry, she asked <laughs> Naomi's leave to go and act on what the law provided. Dear friends, if you're in need, pray, but don't wait for an angel to appear and tell you what to do. Figure out what avenues are open to you within God's general will. If you're not sure, ask. And once you know, seek counsel from those who care most for you. Pray, take initiative, and seek counsel. Finally, for Ruth, look at verse 7. She came into the field, and she, uh, sorry, this is uh, um, Boaz's foreman explaining to him what he has observed of Ruth during the day. She came into the field and has remained here from morning until now, except for a short rest in the shelter. In other words, she's a hard worker. She worked hard. Dear friend, if you're in need, work hard. Work diligently. Use the energy and the skills and the gifts the Lord has given you. Make the most of the opportunities that open up to you. Work hard. Let's conclude. I began by saying that the big idea of chapter 2 is that the Lord is at work in every one of your ordinary moments to catch them up into his glorious purposes. Remember the formula, divine providence plus daily faithfulness equals participation in God's glorious purposes. The Lord guides, he provides, he shows favor, but coupled with his divine doing must be your daily doing in Christian faithfulness. Now, friends, here's the amazing thing. God was at work just as much in Ruth's need as he was in Boaz's plenty. In her weakness, just as much as he was in his strength. In Ruth's want as in Boaz's supply. It was daily faithfulness in Christian character that caught them both up into the story of the coming king and the coming kingdom. It wasn't their circumstances. It was their faithfulness in Christian character. It wasn't whether they had plenty to supply or all they brought was want and need and weakness. It was that wherever they were, circumstantially, they were faithful in Christian character. So where are you right now? Are you in need or in plenty? 
Are you in strength or in weakness? Are you in want or in supply? It doesn't matter where you are on the spectrum of worldly circumstances. Be faithful in Christian character. And God who overrules all is catching up your ordinary moments into his glorious purposes. He has made you part of the story of his coming kingdom. But what if you're in a season of deep spiritual depression? What if you haven't even got spiritual energy to do anything? Some of you have been there. Some of you may be there now. Naomi was there. Let's look for the last time today at verse 2 of chapter 2. Ruth takes the initiative to go and glean. She asks Naomi's counsel. And Naomi says, go ahead, my daughter. Now, I've, uh, I've, I've wondered much this week as I've read the story over and over. With what tone of voice did Naomi say those words? I think she wished she could help. I think it pained her that not only did Ruth need to provide for herself in a foreign land, but she needed to provide for Naomi too. I think she had been brought so low to such a place of spiritual depletion that all she could do was to say, I wish it weren't so. I wish I had something to offer you, my daughter, but I have nothing. All I can do is entrust you to God's care and accept that for myself, I have to receive care from you. But was Naomi left out of God's purposes for going through so low a season? No. Even in her spiritual depression, even in her emptiness, even when all she can do is trust her very survival to the care of another. That's just what she does. Because the very beginning of Christian faithfulness, the very heart of it, whether we are in a season of want or of plenty, of strength or of weakness, is to entrust ourselves to the care of another. And so the formula must be improved. Divine providence plus daily trust plus daily faithfulness in Christian character is what catches us up into the glorious story of the King who is coming soon. Why don't you bow your hearts with me as I pray? Our Father, how wonderful it is to know that the spotlight is not shining on us. The soundtrack is not for us. The music playing is for the King of heaven. The angel song is for him, for the man of standing, for the worthy one. It is for him that the angels sing. It is for him that the choirs and orchestras of heaven will forever play. 
It is his soundtrack. Father, would you help us in days and times where we cannot see to know that you are at work, to trust your guiding, to trust your providing, to trust your favor. Would you help us to be faithful in Christian character, whatever circumstances we're in, whether we are in a season of strength or of weakness, of plenty or of need? Would you help us to be faithful in Christ-like character, even when that means we are so empty, so run down, so spiritually depleted that all we can do is say, I wish I had something to contribute to the situation, but I don't. All I can do is say, go ahead. I entrust myself to the care of another. How wonderful, Father, that you catch us up into your glorious purposes, into the story of the king who has come and who is coming again soon, into the story of the kingdom that comes. How wonderful to be yours. How wonderful to be those who dwell in the shadow of your wings. Amen.